Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Keelan Tan. A bed and breakfast in Beckley, West Virginia is the setting of a new comedy film. You don't have to go somewhere else to make a film. It may be a little bit harder to do it here, but at the end of the day, I mean, you can do it. You can pull it off. We'll also visit a luthier shop where old instruments get new life. I've definitely honed my skills to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there. And we'll hear from author Nima Avashia. Her new book is Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. That notion of another, it's not just that I'm another. It's the idea that Appalachia is much more than the narrative it is given by mainstream media. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Here on Inside Appalachia, we've shared lots of stories over the years about mountain musicians and about the luthiers who make their instruments. Our first story fits somewhere in the middle. Bob Smakula of Elkins, West Virginia, has made a career out of fixing old musical instruments so modern musicians can keep playing them. Folkways reporter Zach Harold visited Smakula's shop to see how it's done. Hey there. All right. Welcome to the chaos. I love it. <laughs> Walk through the front door of Bob Smacula's workshop, and honestly, it's a lot to take in. Every flat surface is covered in stuff. Chisels, screwdrivers, paintbrushes, a random fork, a bottle of lighter fluid. One whole wall is just wood clamps of various shapes and sizes. But eventually, you're able to look past the jumble, and you begin to notice all the musical instruments in various states of repair. Like this ukulele on Bob's workbench. It's a Martin made in the 1920s, a beautiful instrument and a real collector's piece. But it has problems. For some reason, Martin used mahogany for the tuning pegs. So they're fussy, or extra fussy. These tuners are held in place by friction, like the ones on a violin. Now, that friction has caused one of the brittle mahogany pegs to break. I'm going to replace those with uh, a comparable ebony tuning peg, and that's going to work better for him. He's going to be able to get things in tune uh, a bit better. And that is Bob's style. He could have slapped a set of modern metal geared tuners on this ukulele, and it would have stayed in perfect tune. But it wouldn't have been right for a hundred-year-old instrument like this. So he tries to make repairs that both fix an instrument's problems while also staying true to its history. I've definitely honed my skills to, to, you know, to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there. Except to go, hey, this plays better than, than they usually do. Or this sounds better than they usually do. Bob has been honing those invisibility powers for a long time. He's originally from Cleveland, Ohio, where his parents were involved in the folk music scene of the 1960s and 70s. In those days, new acoustic instruments were not very good. They were overbuilt and heavy. So folk musicians tended to seek out older instruments, but those often needed repairs. So Bob's dad, Peter, an engineer by trade, started fixing them. Bob also took an interest in the mechanical side of musical instruments. He had learned how to play his mother's lap dulcimer and wanted one of his own, but he didn't have the money. So he sent away for a build-your-own dulcimer kit. My parents' friends 
uh, saw the instrument and said, hey, uh, you made that. Could you make me one? And the next thing I knew, I was, you know, 14 and in business making dulcimers for people. Bob and his dad, Peter, eventually joined forces and opened Goose Acres Folk Music Center in Cleveland. They became well-known for buying, selling, building, and repairing folk instruments. But instrument repair was a difficult trade to learn in those days. Oh, we were, de- we were definitely inventing the wheel. The, the, uh, the information uh, age of instrument work just wasn't there. There were a few books out there, and, and so I'd grab everything I could in printed sources. But it's not like now where you can find dang near anything you need to know via the Internet. Bob learned much of what he knows from the instruments that appeared on his operating table. You know, maybe some, a part needed to be replaced. We'd study that and put on something similar. Every builder has their own little quirks or their own little design style. He became so good and his work developed such a reputation that Bob decided to leave Cleveland and the business he started with his dad. He would follow his new bride, Mary, She worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Elkins and moved his operations to West Virginia. Then I decided I can do my work anywhere in the world. It didn't have to be in Cleveland. Anywhere a UPS truck can come, I can can, uh, fix an instrument and send it back to the owner. Turns out he was right. And in addition to his repair work, Bob also taught instrument repair classes at the nearby Augusta Heritage Center. That's how he found his apprentices Nate Druckenmiller and Andy Fitzgibbon. Now customers from all over the country ship their banjos, fiddles, mandolins, and guitars to this little shop in the woods where Bob, Andy, and Nate get them singing again. Like this banjo from 1887. You know, made by a a talented woodworker who maybe banjos wasn't his his main thing, but uh, it's, it's really interesting, really. This instrument is on Andy's bench. He's worked for Bob for over 20 years, and he's the shop's banjo guy. So you see a lot of unique one-off home-built ones like this, uh, you know, very, very in quality, anywhere from really crude to really nice. And this one is a really nice one. And you can see, you know, you can look at it and see somebody played it a lot to where it put all this wear in it. So it has a lot of, uh, a lot of history that way, too. And it is fun to be able to get them back up and running again. But as nice as it is, there are some things about this old banjo that just don't live up to modern standards. The frets, for instance. Builders nowadays know that frets need to be precisely placed, like down to hundredths of an inch, for an instrument to play in tune. The frets on this 1887 banjo weren't placed with nearly that kind of precision. Now, since this banjo is more of a collector's piece, Andy's going to keep that wonky fret job. At this point, you kind of have to balance playability with, with the historical aspect of it. But the balance might tip in the other direction if, say, that instrument was going to be played on stage. Or if the original construction method had somehow compromised the banjo's structural integrity. In those cases, Andy might have to apply just a bit more modern know-how. Like he did with Bob's own 1903 Fairbanks banjo. Bob's uncle got it in a bar in Newton Center, Massachusetts. Goes in one day and he sees this banjo in the corner. He said, hey, Tom, what's with the banjo? And the, Tom says, ah, 
Somebody used it to pay a bar tab. You want it? You can have it. So it had a lot of sentimental value, but it wasn't a great player. You know, all the time that I've had it, I always thought, it just there's something missing. There's something that needs to be, you know, done to make this, the, you know, the, the best playing banjo for me. It turns out the fingerboard was made from ebonized hardwood. That's a technique where woodworkers imitate the look of ebony by creating a chemical reaction in the wood's natural acids. And the acid dyes that they used 120 years ago uh, causes slow degradation to the wood cell structure. And without it being a good solid piece of wood, well, it would just you know, bend ever so slightly and, and make it harder to play. After years of working on instruments just like this, Bob and Andy decided to rip out the old fingerboard and replace it with real ebony. They replaced the wood on the peghead with a special kind of poplar. It matches the color of old ebonized wood, but it's more stable. And this banjo went from, from uh, you know, one of my favorite, you know, or my favorite family heirloom to my favorite banjo to play. But I like it for the little bit of fingerstyle banjo playing I do too. Bob had been playing this banjo for nearly 40 years before making that repair. So why the delay? Well, the instrument really belonged to his dad. It didn't pass into Bob's possession until Peter's death in 2008. But really, that worked out perfectly. By the time it was actually his, Bob had all those years of experience and knew exactly how to fix it. He doesn't make his customers wait quite that long for repairs, of course. Some take only hours. A severe case might take six months. You've just got to find a place on his very long wait list. That's why, when I was saying my goodbyes to everybody at the shop, that Bob made a request. When you're airing this, you know, I want to make sure you, you don't, like, give away or tell anybody my exact location, but say, you know, north of Elkins. I said I noticed he only had a P.O. box on his website. Was he worried someone would break in and make off with somebody's vintage guitar? No. It turns out Bob is worried about something far more precious. You see how busy we are. If I did have my address, people would just stop by. Oh, just wanted to see what you have. It's like, I have no time. <laughs> You know, I've got no... Yeah, I've got... Uh, I've got uh, Bob has worked for a long time to be invisible. Let's not ruin that for him. From an undisclosed location somewhere north of Elkins, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. Gonna lay down my old guitar Gonna lay down my old guitar Oh, I wish I could tie it Author Nima Avashia grew up in a neighborhood in Kanawha County, West Virginia, as the daughter of immigrants. Her new book is Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. It's a collection of essays that describe her experience coming up as an Indian American, who also happens to be queer and Appalachian. 
I spoke with Avashia about her story. I started by asking her about her hometown outside Charleston. Tell me about Cross Lanes, because it, it's very present in your book, and it almost feels like it's a character itself in some ways. Yeah, well, the first thing to know about Cross Lanes is that it's not actually a town, um, in a way. It's, it's unincorporated, it always has been, and it has this sort of, from the highway, if you looked at Cross Lanes from the highway, what you see is a bunch of gas stations and fast food restaurants. A lot of people will say, if they've ever been to West Virginia, and they've ever been across lanes, and they're not from there, a lot of what they say is, oh, we stopped there to get gas, or we stopped there to eat something while we were passing through. So it's not like a place that people visit necessarily, but it is a place where a lot of people live. Once you get past the gas stations, though, it's a lot of little communities that are kind of like, um, a lot of them were planned communities. They were built around the same time. Developers would basically just build out a whole community, kind of um, all the houses would have the same footprint. Um, You could go into any house in the neighborhood and it sort of operated in the same way. And so I grew up in one of those little neighborhoods and it was called Westgate. And it was an incredible place to grow up. Um, I grew up on a street where everybody knew each other, where people left their doors unlocked, where kids just went in and out of each other's houses and in and out of each other's refrigerators. Um, And there was this real shared sense of, of being raised not just by your parents, but being raised kind of by your community. And that really extended past my street. Um, there was this sort of very hands-on approach to mentoring and cultivating community and cultivating young people that really marks my growing up. And is, is such an important part, I think, of who I am today is because of growing up in Cross Lanes. Your, your family located, I guess, in West Virginia in Cross Lanes because your father worked for Union Carbide. What, what was it like growing up in the shadow of the chemical industry and with, with him working for you know, such, a, such a prominent employer at the time in the state? I remember from very, very little that when, um, when, when the air would start to smell, I knew the smell of the chemical. Like I could name it. I knew when more captain was in the air, right? But also I grew up in a place where you could smell the chemicals in the air. Um, And my dad would get called to the plant late at night or in the morning if there was an accident. You know, I was five when the Bhopal incident happened and my dad went to India for several weeks um, as part of Carbide's response. I remember the sort of tension in the community post-Bhopal because Institute also made methyl isocyanate. So same chemical was being produced in both places and people were anxious. And so I think I always had this awareness from very little that the work that my dad did was fraught, um, that it was it was what was putting food on our table, but it wasn't uncontroversial work. It was work that people had very complicated feelings about. And people who worked there worked there because it was the work that there was to do. But I think that also a lot of us carry the awareness that that work had consequences. It had health consequences. It had environmental consequences. Um, it had labor consequences. Carbide is this very complicated mix of emotions for me. The plant used to rent out the the skating rink at the Civic Center every Sunday for families. And we went ice skating every Sunday. And they used to have a camp for the kids of the employees at the plant, Carbide Camp. And they would, every summer, kids from the camp, uh, from who whose parents worked at the plant, could go to those camps. And so there were these ways in which I think being associated with Carbide in some ways was like incredibly enriching of our experience, um, but also came with costs and came with complications. 
I know for me growing up, like I went to college in Rhode Island and that mm-hmm. was really when my identification around growing up in Appalachia crystallized. I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about how you've shaped your Appalachian identity along along the way, you know, from that childhood in Cross Lanes. Yeah, you know, it's funny to hear you say that because that's a similar thing as what happened to me, right? The whole time I was growing up in Appalachia, I was like, well, I don't know if I'm Appalachian because I'm Indian and there are very few of us here. And then when I moved to Pittsburgh, I my Appalachian-ness sort of became like the defining thing. Like there were Indian people around me, but they weren't like me either. Um, and people had a lot of negative things to say about the place where I grew up, which I think is really ironic now when uh, when I hear Pittsburgh sort of claiming its northern Appalachian identity. And I think about the things that people in Pittsburgh used to say about Appalachia. I'm like, how did we get this far in 20 years? I don't know. But I do think that in college, I started to sort of surface the differences between where I was living and where I was raised. And I think those differences have only become more and more salient the further I've gone from Appalachia. I've lived in Boston for almost 20 years, and it still doesn't feel like home to me. Culturally, I just feel like there is this way in which the pace at which life moves here and the coldness of this place, both the literal and figurative coldness of this place, makes it really hard for it to feel like home. Um, And so I've sort of feel like I've always just sort of existed with this feeling of like not, not knowing totally where I'm supposed to belong in it. But I also think that as I have read more and more Appalachian literature, it's actually helped me to find my way into in, into an identity in a way or into a way of understanding my relationship to place that I think when it was just me trying to make meaning of it in my head, I couldn't. But then I'm like reading reading writers like Frank X. Walker, reading writers like Silas House and Ann Pancake and Breeze DJ Pancake, and starting to see that there are these themes and patterns and trends. You said Cross Lanes is a character in my book. And I think in general, and Anne Pancake says this a lot, she says, place is a character in Appalachian literature. I think there's a way in which as I've been writing and reading, it's helped me to find my way into where I might fit in this narrative in a way that I think, I don't know that I could have located at any other point in this journey. But that in some ways, like the the ways in which the Appalachian writing traditions have shaped or informed the way I think about my writing and the way I approach it is is a way in which it's, it's helped me feel closer, I think, to Appalachia than I have in a really long time. We're speaking with Nima Avashia, whose family immigrated from India to West Virginia in the 1970s. Her new book is Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Coming up, we'll hear more from Mason's interview with Avashia. That's after the break. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. I'm speaking with Nima Avashia. Let's hear an excerpt from her new book. 
I'm going to be reading from Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. And I'm going to read a little bit from the essay, Nine Forms of the Goddess. It is 1982, and nine Indian women have gathered in a circle in a basement in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, to celebrate the Festival of Navratri. The basement floor is covered with bright blue indoor-outdoor carpet. The walls are lined with honey-brown faux wood paneling, and there is a red metal beam in the center of the room where a lighted brass pot called a garbo and idols of deities should typically stand. In sharp contrast to their damp surroundings, these women dress in their heaviest silk saris and best jewelry. Finery brought with them in suitcases that traveled 8,000 miles from India to New York, sometimes by way of Kenya or Uganda or England, and then another 500 miles from Jamaica, Queens to the hills of West Virginia. The women gather for as many of nine nights as they can spare each autumn. In Gujarati, nav means nine and rat means night. Each night, a different color inspires their clothing. Each night, a different incarnation of the goddess Durga is the focus of their worship. Durga, queen among Hindu goddesses, warrior for good, vanquisher of evil. She's often depicted astride a tiger, holding a sword, a trident, a mace, and a dagger in her many arms. Durga literally means unassailable, the mother goddess who will not be challenged or questioned in her battle to preserve the dharma of the righteous. These worshippers of Durga begin each night the same way, singing the Matajina Garba in voices that are pitched and clear. With their words, they praise the many forms and powers of the mother goddess. They slowly clap and slide around the circle, their motions repetitive and rhythmic. They pick up speed. The two-clap step gives way to a three-clap. Their bodies begin to blur, faces lost in a whirl of spinning, shining colors. The smell of sweat mixing with that of perfume and powder fills the room. In the morning, tiny purple bruises will dot their arms, elicited by the repeated banging of their glass bangles. The soles of their feet will bear the red mar marks of carpet burn. Their waist will host near-permanent indentations from the tightness of their petticoats. But for these nine nights, there is no pain insufferable enough to make them leave the circle early. Nine women gather, nine nights, nine colors, nine forms of the mother goddess spinning in front of me. We've talked a little bit about, you know, the Appalachia part of the title and even a little bit about coming up Indian. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear um, more about, uh, you know, coming to terms with being queer and how, whether the community inside Appalachia, the role it played in that. You know, I think that it's important to remember that we're around the same age, you and I. Um, and when we were growing up, it was the sort of height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and any visibility around queerness was really tied to HIV and AIDS. And so the narrative was incredibly negative by and large. Um, and so it was either negative or it was invisible. Um, and, and I think that that was the, the dominant experience I had around queerness growing up was one of silence. Like I remember the first gay West Virginian I met was actually when I was in Pittsburgh and I was 19 and I helped to bring a piece of the AIDS quilt to campus. Uh, and the closest section of the AIDS quilt was located in Wheeling, West Virginia. And I remember talking to the man who brought it and, and really pretty naively just basically being like, I didn't know any gay people in West Virginia when I was growing up. And he was like, well, they were there. You might not have known they were there, but they were there. 
And I think that that was probably the defining experience for me was just this notion of invisibility. Like, I think it took me a lot longer to figure out my identity because I didn't have models. And it was really easy for me to attribute, like, feeling like I was on the outside to race because, like, that was the most visible marker of difference. Uh, but in retrospect, I can also see that race was one layer, but queerness was another one. And I think that sort of coming to that identity or understanding myself as a queer person took me a lot longer because of the absence of models. I think it's part of what actually motivated me to write the book was that there are young queer people in West Virginia right now. There are young brown queer people in West Virginia and Appalachia right now. And like, I don't know, I want them to know that there are people in the world who look like them um, and who came up the way they're coming up and who sort of struggle to ask those questions and make meaning for themselves. And I hope in some ways that having access to this book makes their road a little bit easier. At the same time, I feel like there were also things about growing up in Appalachia that allowed me to think really differently around ideas of community and family that are much more in line with queerness um, than, I, than, I, than I think people would necessarily know looking at it from the outside. Like, uh, Anne Pancake's going to come up again because she talks about this idea of the kinship economy, right? And this way in which Appalachian people are in community with each other and relational with each other that is not based on family lines, but is based on like, I see you, you see me, we recognize a need and we try to support each other. And we don't let definitions of this is my relative and this is not my relative be the thing that trip us up. That idea is quite queer in nature choosing your family, figuring out like who's my chosen family is such a such a part of queer experience. And yet it was also deeply a part of my Appalachian experience. Like that's not different. It's actually very much the same. My blood family lived 8,000 miles away in India. My neighbors on Pamela Circle are my family. They chose me and I chose them. And like that had nothing to do with with blood. It had to do with choice. And so I think it's this funny thing where there was invisibility in some ways, but also there are certain ways of being in Appalachia that I think actually are, are really resonant to then how I experience the world as an adult and the ways in which choosing family and figuring out who your people are. Like I learned how to do those things growing up. As we're talking here, just the connections you make and that commonality you find is basically pattern recognition. I'm a hetero, white, cisgender guy. And yet, as you're talking through, I'm thinking about how the shooting at the Backstreet Cafe in Roanoke in 2000, I was living in California, but I saw that news that was a gay bar in Roanoke that was shot up mm -hmm. in 2000. And I read about it in the San Francisco Chronicle, and it made me want to get into journalism and come back. That said, I also recognize like, I'm adjacent to these things, not of them. I have that privilege and that I'm removed and, and haven't been, you know, had to deal with the insults and harassment and things I heard from people that went to Backstreet. I've never been targeted by a gunman walking into a bar because of my yeah. identity. So I see that as well. But yeah, everything you're saying right. just resonates deeply with me. Well, and I think that, you know, what has happened is that um, a very loud, very narrow narrative and set of stereotypes have been ascribed to Appalachia. And 
when we're all living in the context of those stereotypes and that narrative, it makes it really hard for people to get past it. Uh, it makes it really hard for people to see each other outside of those stereotypes and that narrative because it's just so loud. Like the volume is so high on it that even if you know it's not the case, it's exhausting. Like it's easier to just let the narrative be the narrative than to keep fighting against it all the time and to say, nope, we're here, we're visible, we're here, we're visible. It's more complicated. Like that takes so much work. Um, and I think it can be emotionally and mentally exhausting, but at the same time, that is the thing that I think is the way forward. Like, I think the way forward is the way in which we see the whole range of another's that have made up Appalachia forever. Like none of this is new, right? Indian people being in West Virginia started in the seventies, black folks being in West Virginia started way before that. And yet growing up in West Virginia and West Virginia public schools, I didn't learn that history. I didn't learn about the Kanawha Salines and I lived 20 minutes from Malden, right? I didn't learn about the Battle of Blair Mountain. I didn't learn about that history. It wasn't visible to me, even as a student in schools. And so I think a question that I, I want us to just think about is how actively are we even working internally to make that visible, to make that history visible and to make that current diversity visible? And when you look at some of the legislation um, that's at the state house right now. Like, it's hard not to think about that. Like I didn't learn those things and it wasn't against the law. It was like a chosen silence. And now we're looking at people who are trying to legislate that silence. Kanawha County. So 76, 77 was the textbook wars, right? Like I think about this all the time as an adult, we did bomb threat drills all growing up. We were on the baseball field once every week for a bomb threat drill. Why are we doing those? Because of the textbook wars. Because in the 70s, people were throwing Molotov cocktails into school buildings and into buses to keep people from reading Black writers and queer writers and to keep people from reading anything that disrupted the status quo. We're not far from that history even now, right? So I just think like there is this scepter of violence that is always in the background threatening like if you disrupt the narrative like we're here and we're gonna let you know and I think that that created such silence around my education I didn't read a single author of color in my k-12 education until I was a senior in high school and I chose to do my term paper on Maya Angelou that was the first author of color I read in k-12 and that again it wasn't the law it was that sort of like the assumed silence or the imposed silence, like social silence. It doesn't serve the people who look like me. It doesn't serve queer kids. It doesn't serve black kids. It doesn't serve brown kids. I don't think it serves white kids either, but it does serve a narrative that wants us to stay divided from each other, that doesn't want us to understand each other, that doesn't want us to see that we have more in common than we have different. It serves to divide. Obviously, you're very Appalachia focused. I'm curious about how that sort of changed your perception, even just over the course of writing this this memoir. I think growing up, what was so interesting is like no one ever said that it was possible to stay like, you know, it was the 90s. The chemical industry was busting like the economy was just busting like teachers in my life, my parents, like it was just, everyone was like, you got to go. There's not going to be work here. You have to go. And so I took that as, 
as word. Like I took that as the word of the adult in my life and I went. Um, and I like went into the world and I realized how much there was about Appalachia that is so lacking in the rest of the country. And so there is a part of me emotionally that still feels really connected. I can also look at the reality of being a queer brown person and thinking about the consequences that would come onto my body and my family of living in a place where my story is not one that is valued um, and one that is criminalized in a lot of ways, you know? Uh, and I think that's a really hard thing to hold. Um, it doesn't diminish my love of place or people, but it just makes it really hard to think about choosing into going into a space where there's such an active effort to erase me. At the same time, I have been so overwhelmed during this process by the ways in which folks in Appalachia have embraced this story. I feel like I've built like all whole new relationships with incredible Appalachian writers. I feel like there are queer activists who reach out to me on the regular um, looking for ways to connect and looking for ways to sort of share stories and sort of talk about how my writing's resonating for them and share the work that they're doing. I think that, you know, going back to Heinemann this summer, I'm going to be teaching in their young Appalachian Writers Workshop, which is a new workshop that they're starting for young people. And there's this really emotional feeling about the idea that young Appalachian kids are going to see me as a, as a face of Appalachian writing. Like that's kind of mind blowing because um, it's not something I could have ever imagined growing up. And I think the idea that a young person would see me and be like, okay, if this person is brown and queer and they're from Appalachia and they're writing their story, like what space does it make for, for the young people who come after us? I just feel really lucky to be able to do that. And I feel also like it's such an important difference in the way that that these young people are going to get to experience what it means to be Appalachian versus the definition I sort of understood when I was growing up. What do you what's the most important thing that you want Appalachians, listeners, readers to take away from your story? I really hope that Appalachian readers who read this book um, feel like it holds them, feel like their identities are honored and valued, that the communities that they live in are respected. I think it feels really important to me. I mean, I think the title says this, right? That notion of another, it's not just that I'm another. It's the idea that Appalachia is much more than the narrative it is given by mainstream media. And I hope that for Appalachian folks, they feel that when they read this book. They feel me pushing and pushing and pushing to expand the way people understand the place that I come from and the, the place that I really deeply love um, and people who I really deeply love. Nima Avashia, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mason. I love doing this with you. That was Nima Avashia, who lives and teaches in Boston. Her new book is Another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. Out now from West Virginia University Press. When you think 
think of West Virginia, what comes to mind? Maybe you picture the New River Gorge or a windy mountain road or maybe a coal mine. But comedy is probably not the first or second on the list. It's probably not even in the top 10. But as Chris Schultz reports, a multi-day festival in Morgantown is aiming to change that. Cody Cannon is a Morgantown comedian. He's passionate about what he does, but he's also passionate about where he does it. I want comedians to want to come to West Virginia. I want there to be more exciting things happening in West Virginia. And I like festivals. To like create one of my own is kind of like a dream come true almost. But that dream was almost never realized, said Noah Basden, another Morgantown comedian. This festival was scheduled for 2020, like right before COVID really popped off. It was like, it was go time. Alas, a festival in mid-April of 2020 was just one of countless live performances that were hastily canceled as the world adjusted to the emergent coronavirus. While in-person events have started to recover over the past year, nascent comedy scenes across West Virginia definitely took a hit. There aren't as many people, which is a bummer. I really want to see more people coming out to the scene. It's just uh, not the humongous, diverse crowds we were getting right before the pandemic. We're starting to slowly build up steam. That steam culminated with a festival. On March 31st, the Red Eye Comedy Festival brought three days of laughs to Morgantown. Red Eye Comedy Festival is... A combination of like local artists, like musical and comedic, and also like national acts. Three days, three different venues, three different shows. Bazin has spent years working as a comedian in Chicago before moving back to Morgantown. There, he hosted shows in his house under the moniker of The Potion Castle. A festival is certainly a step up from do-it-yourself house shows or even the popular open mics in downtown Morgantown that Bazin helped create. Cannon has been plugging away to create an environment for comedy in Morgantown, too. He's attracted national names like Mike Kaplan and Joelle Nicole Johnson to do shows in Morgantown, often their first time performing anywhere in West Virginia. For the festival, he helped attract touring headliners Amina Imani and Dave Ross. I'm 36 years old, and I, I the place I feel the safest is always the place in whatever town that was like, built out of stickers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't touch that. That's a load-bearing flyer. <laughs> Ross headlined Friday's show alongside the folks of satire website The Hard Times. Ross came up in the punk and alternative scenes that The Hard Times lampoons, with the same kind of DIY ethos comedy in West Virginia requires. I'm, like, really excited to go to West Virginia. It's impressive to build a comedy scene from nothing. And that's a big reason I feel privileged to be booked on this festival and to be thought of. While touring comedians might be a major draw, the festival aimed to highlight local talent. The festival was packed with mostly West Virginia comics and not just Morgantown's deep pool of stand-ups. One such comic is Alexandria Runyon of Huntington. So it's really exciting for my first participation in a festival to be a West Virginia festival, you know, that was put together by West Virginians. Runyon, who works part-time as a producer for Inside Appalachia, has been part of Huntington's comedy scene since she was in college. She sees the festival as a step in the right direction for a region ready for a new way to tell its stories. I hope that the future of comedy in the state is just abundant. I know that there are so many people here in West Virginia who are storytellers, and I think, like, oral storytelling is a trademark of Appalachian people, and I think comedy is just a very natural way to present those stories. That's a sentiment Cannon can get behind, and drives his desire to see this festival and others like it succeed. 
I want this state to do well. It breeds incredible artists, constantly popping up with incredible talent. And one thing I'd like this thing to do, I, I only want it to grow. All right. You guys ready to get this show started? Does that sound like a good idea? Yes, sir. All right. First comedian coming to the stage, a very funny. Three days, three venues, and three shows came and went with the start of April in Morgantown. Of the three shows, at least one sold out, and another nearly broke a venue record for attendance at a comedy show. Speaking the following week, Cannon was pleased with the outcome. Did we make money? No, but uh, it's a learning experience, and it was a great time. We did the best numbers we've done since COVID, and it was a magical experience for me. He says not only are venues already eager to sign on for next year, but individuals have reached out to him saying the festival has inspired them to try out comedy. All in all, the effort appears to be a success, but Basden hopes next time will be even better for everyone involved. I really want to be able to pay locals because a lot of people just did this for free this year, which is really nice of them. And I don't think we could have done it. We, we really could have done it without everyone's help. Next year's festival is still a ways away, but for now it appears the first outing achieved what it set out to do. A comedy festival for the people of West Virginia, by the people of West Virginia. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. All I know is that the last time I checked, dinner was at 6.45. And the last time I checked, that was... In eight minutes. Eight minutes right. from now. That's a scene from an upcoming film called Ambrosia. It's a slapstick comedy that's set in a quirky bed and breakfast in Beckley, West Virginia. Ambrosia is a feature-length movie, but it's not a Hollywood movie. The two directors are from West Virginia, and nearly the entire cast and crew are, too. Focus reporter Clara Hazlett has more. Beckley filmmakers Shane Pierce and Dave Gravely wrote and directed the comedy Ambrosia. They're not full-time filmmakers, but it's not just a casual hobby, either. Their shared interest in film goes way back. Shane and I met in high school, and we were just really interested in film, and it ate up most of our conversations just talking about, hey, have you seen this movie? Yeah, I've seen this movie. Come over, let's watch this movie. That went on for several years, until eventually they decided to give it a go themselves. We got together, Googled how to, you know, how do you write a script. They called themselves Butter Chicken Pictures, in honor of the meal they shared on their first day of shooting their first short film. Dave and, and I are both big food fans, and we both love Butter Chicken. On their first feature film, they brought on Beckley photographer Seja Montague as their producer. I was just like totally unaware of what I was walking into. And when I got there, I was like, man, this is weird. I didn't know there were people like this in Beckley <laughs> that were doing these like cool things. When they decided to make their second film, they knew they wanted to shoot it in Beckley. And the Ambrosia Inn was the perfect setting. We all drive by the Ambrosia every day on the way just to get to our houses. It was an old coal baron mansion that had been turned into a bed and breakfast. And it has personality. It's almost a character in and of itself. It's a very bizarre looking location. Its architecture sort of sticks out. It's kind of isolated, it has a big plot of land, and it kind of juts up in all these strange directions. The film would follow a day in the life of Quilliam Frankfurt. He's the fictional owner-operator of the Bed and Breakfast. Hello, William Frankfurt, owner-operator. Hello. 
And one stormy summer day, the guests are all trapped inside. Good morning, West Virginians. I'm meteorologist Roger Moore. I'd love to tell you this because I'm a weather guy. It's going to be bad, bad, bad. Quilliam has high standards, and with a house full of quirky guests and a storm on the horizon, he has a lot on his plate. Martha, I need updates for room three and four in the suite. Spotless. Listen, I was in the pantry earlier this morning. Once Dave and Shane had decided on the plot and the location, then came the challenges. There's a practical barrier of like, well, I'd like to make a film, but there's nobody else really in West Virginia right now making films. I don't know how to do that. And there's the psychological barrier. I have an ambition, but I'm from West Virginia, and people who are from West Virginia don't do those things. If they want to make a film, they move to New York, and they move to L.A., and they go to film school. But Shane says community support for their project outweighed those challenges. People are hungry for this stuff to happen here, and it doesn't matter if they're involved with it. They see those crazy people across town with their camera crew, and they're filming some, some slapstick gag in the backyard of this mansion. It's just, it's just exciting. One day we were shooting, and the neighbor had started up his John Deere mower at like full blast. I mean, you know, the guy was like doing circles around his lawn, and you know, we're on a very tight deadline here. We, we have to finish this scene. People have to go to work. And so we were like, we're going to have to tell this guy to shut his mower off, which is not a good feeling, because, like, who are we to tell this guy? So we go over and we talk to him, and uh, he was excited to shut his mower off so we could shoot the scene. And I was just like, man, this, it feels really good to be in Beckley right now. The production of Ambrosia was a statewide collaboration involving multiple generations of West Virginia filmmakers, like Danny Boyd, who started making films and acting in the 1980s. They asked Danny for advice on the film. And he's like, yeah, let me just come down and, and hang out and let me just be on the film. Danny ended up acting in the movie, alongside an actress who had acted in his own movies back in the 80s. I'm more proud of that than almost anything else, because like we carried on the flame of something that started a long time ago. Dave and Shane also invited film students from Marshall University to intern on the Ambrosia set. Shane says they wanted to show the interns it's possible to make a film in West Virginia. You don't have to go somewhere else to make a film. It may be a little bit harder to do it here, but at the end of the day, I mean, you can do it. You can pull it off. With help from Mountain Craft Productions out of Fairmont, Butter Chicken Pictures spent about two weeks filming Ambrosia last summer. They recruited and hired actors, many of whom were not actually actors by trade. The way Shane and I like to do it is if there's a certain personality that we find interesting in town, uh, even if they're not an actor, we'll just say, how about you just be in the movie? They kind of create their own personalities and their own characters that we honestly probably couldn't have written. And it adds that level of Beckley weirdness that I think we want to come through. One such character was David Cybray. He played Stanley Kubeletz, a filmmaker and explorer staying at the Ambrosia Inn. Amusingly, they wrote, the, they wrote me into this. The character is to some extent myself. In real life, David is the publisher of West Virginia Explorer magazine. He'd acted a few times in high school and college, but he'd never done anything at the scale of Ambrosia. The first day of shooting was the 
the hardest day and I was almost in tears by the end of the day. You know, I'm, I'm 55. Him, you know, we were, it was 10 o'clock at night and I had been there, I'm sure, since 7 a.m. And they were still going. We were all still going. David, like most of the casting crew, was taking time off work to shoot the film. And even though filming the movie was no vacation, David says Ambrosia gave him the chance to try something he'd always felt inclined to, but never pursued professionally. Discovering this part of myself again was, it was a breakthrough. Now I'm an actor. I always was an actor. I've always been an actor. Will we be having Ambrosia this evening? Seven o'clock sharp. My favorite scenes were the dinner scenes. I think we had eight people at the table and the directors and soundmen and lighting, the forks and the knives and the spoons and the goblets. Shane says Ambrosia is just one part of a creative renaissance happening in Beckley right now. It's like every couple weeks, you're just seeing new projects. Something new is happening in Beckley. And while Ambrosia is still in the editing phase, Butter Chicken Pictures is already looking forward to their next film. You really go into it and you become this like family unit and you just become so close and then it's over and it's like, oh. Let's do that again. Like, what's the next thing we can do? Because I want that feeling back. Ambrosia is set to debut at the Raleigh Playhouse in Beckley later this spring. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. Well, until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Sheps, and Dinosaur Burbs. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia.wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs, to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.